All right, so tonight we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, and we're going to go into chapter 5 and go to verse 10. In the study, we're going to see Christ Jesus, the great high priest. And so the writer now begins a really, a new section of this book, really the largest section. He's going to go all the way until chapter 10, showing how Jesus is the great high priest. Now, in thinking about being great, I was thinking about uh, the great athletes of history. And the question arises, well, who is the greatest athlete of all time? Well, ESPN and SportsCenter teamed up, and, the, and they listed the following 16 contestants. Here's what they say. Here's the list of 16. Boxer Muhammad Ali, Iron Man Mark Allen, Jacob Kelso. No, no, I, I, don't, find, I don't find myself in there. NFL player Jim Brown, NASCAR racer Dale Earnhardt, tennis star Roger Federer, NHL player Wayne Gretzky, skate legend Tony Hawk, NFL slash Major League Baseball player Bo Jackson, Michael Jordan, we all know what he played, right? Basketball, he shouldn't have played baseball. Carl Lewis, the, race, uh, the, the runner. Willie Mays, Pele. Michael Phelps, Jackie Robinson, the UFC contender Anderson Silva, and Tiger Woods. So now, after factoring the, the, the data based on what they say, um, you know, the person had speed and power and reaction time and, and other things, they determined that the top four were, number one, Bo Jackson, number two, Jim Brown, after that are Michael Jordan and Jackie Robinson. And so that's the, they say the top four athletes. Now, after hearing this list, maybe you, like me, have some objections. How did Dale Earnhardt and Tony Hawk and Tiger Woods make the list? I mean, are they even athletes, right? I, I mean, I, I, now, if, if you're a NASCAR fan, you will say, well, yeah, man, they are, they, they are athletes. They, they sit in that hot car and, you know, they, they use reaction time, stuff like that. But here's the real answer to that question. They're athletes because they met ESPN's criteria to be on this list and in this competition. Now, I draw your attention to this contest because the writer of the Hebrews begins this new section by showing us that Jesus is greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Tonight, the writer is going to show us that Jesus has the characteristics to make him great. There was a lot of high priests, but none of them were the great high priest. Jesus is the greatest. Now, the writer anticipates some possible objections about Jesus the Messiah being the great high priest. Some Jews might object and say, well, wait a second. How can Jesus even be in this list in the first place? Isn't he a king from the line of Judah? He's not from the line of Aaron. He's not a priest. Well, as we'll see, according to God's criteria, Jesus should be in this list because he has the qualifications and the prerequisites to function as a great high priest. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. So first we begin in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We see that Jesus has the characteristics to make him the greatest high priest. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now there were high priests in the Old Testament, but none of them were ever called the great high priest. Now this title of greatness was reserved for Jesus because only Jesus can fulfill this role. Only he can meet the characteristics. 
Jesus is great because, first of all, of his position. Notice this, he passed through the heavens. Now, Aaron and the Levitical priests, they would pass through the tabernacle. Later, it would be the temple. They would go through the holy place into the Holy of Holies once a year as they would make atonement on the Day of Atonement, on the mercy seat. They're covering the sins of the people for that year. But Jesus, after his death and resurrection, ascended into the heavens. He passed through the heavens. Now, there are three heavens mentioned in the Bible, and those three heavens are, first of all, the sky, where the birds fly, space, where, you know, there are planetary systems, and then the third heaven, which is where God's throne is. And Jesus passed through the heavens. In other words, he, he ascended into heaven, and there he, now he sits at God's right hand. He has a greater position. He's there in authority, equal with God, able to intercede for us and to minister for us. Jesus is great because of his person. Notice the writer refers to the name Jesus. Now, the writer of Hebrews is unlike most of the authors in the New Testament. He often refers to Jesus as just the name Jesus. I love this because oftentimes when you listen to some Bible teachers, they say, you should never refer to the name Jesus. How dare you? You should always refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus. And say, well, the writer of Hebrews often referred to him as Jesus. And so we can refer to him as Jesus. Now, yes, he does refer to him in, in the name Jesus in the terms of his humanity because he's making a point that Jesus was a man. Now, this name does stress his humanity um, and, and it shows the importance of the fact that he was a man because he ha has to be a man in order to be our high priest. And we'll see that in chapter five. And so because Jesus was a man and he remains the God man, he is able to be our high priest. Also, he's the son of God. The term son of God refers to his deity, the fact that he is the divine son of God. So a priest, their function was to be a mediator. And that's one term we're told of Jesus. He's our mediator between God and man, right? First Timothy 2.5. And Jesus is able to fulfill this role because he was both God and man. As man, he's able to take the place of man, able to minister to man, able to sympathize with man. But also as God, he's able to bring us to God. So he's able to do that perfect mediation between God and man. Now, our knowledge of Jesus brings us to a required response. It's not just like, oh, wow, that's cool. No, there's always a response when you learn more and more about who Jesus is. And Jesus often showed that to his disciples there in the Gospels. Often the Lord would give these parables, these deep teachings, and the purpose of them was so when the disciples were alone later on, they would ask him about it. And then the Lord would explain it to them. But that explanation was to take them deeper. It was to draw them closer to Jesus. It was to give them a deeper understanding of who he was and how they were to serve him. And the same is true for us. The same is true for the Hebrews. The Lord says here, let us hold fast our confession. That's what he's saying through this writer. Hold fast your confession. Now this is the third time that the writer gives this encouragement to these readers. He tells them to abide in their confession or as some of your translations might put it, profession. And now we know this because um, the, you know, the Hebrews were thinking about returning back to Judaism. That's what they were contemplating. They were thinking about setting aside their Christian faith because of persecution and going back to Judaism. And the writer says, no, over and over and over, you need to hold fast to your profession. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus. Now he uses some strong language here. 
The term hold fast means to cling tight to. It means to cling on to Jesus. And I'm reminded of that after, you know, remember after Jesus was resurrected and there they saw Jesus again and, and were told that, you know, the ladies held on to Jesus. You know, they, they clinged on to him. And, and in a sense, that's what we're to be like as we walk with the Lord. We're to keep a hold on him. We're to, to draw near to him. Now, our world is changing around us. And the Bible says in the last days, it will grow worse and worse. One of the characteristics is false teaching. We're told in the last days there'll be doctrines of demons. There'll be, there'll be these teachings to try to pull people away. Now, one of the results of buying into false teaching, Paul says in Ephesians 4, is that you're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You're just flung around from left to right. But as we hold fast to our confession, we remain strong. We abide in Christ. You know, we become anchored as we focus on him. So what an encouragement for us to remain strong, to continue to hold on to the faith to, by focusing on Jesus and focusing on his word. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so because Jesus is God and man, he can minister to the believer in a unique way. Because Jesus lived as a man, he can sympathize or as the word can be translated, suffer long with those who are under attack. Whether temptation or whether affliction, Jesus is able to suffer long with you. He was under attack as well. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet he, became out, yet he came out victorious. He was without sin. So now Jesus did not face every temptation that we face as we did not face every temptation that he faces. And so, you know, I've never been tempted to turn a stone into bread, you know. And so, so we shouldn't say, well, Jesus had to face every temptation that we face. Well, no, we don't face everything that he faced. Nor should we assume that Jesus was tempted like us from within, from our flesh. Jesus was always tempted from without by the enemy. But nevertheless, Jesus' temptations were always real. And Satan tempted Jesus to the fullest extent in every major area of temptation that you and I could face today. Those areas of temptation are given to us in 1 John 2.16. John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so Jesus faced these major areas of temptation, and we see that in the Gospels, specifically Matthew 4. Thereafter, Jesus' baptism, we're told that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. God had a purpose in this. He wanted to test Jesus to show that he was the Son of God, the King of kings, Lord of lords. But what God meant for good, you know, the enemy tried to use for evil. He tried to tempt Jesus in order for him to fall. So he came to Jesus and, first of all, tempted him in the lust of the flesh. It says there that after Jesus was hungry, he, there he saw the bread and the enemy came to him and said, hey, turn the stone into bread. He was appealing to his physical hunger. He wanted Jesus to bypass the will of God and turn the stone to bread. And Jesus says, no, you shall not, you know, um, you know, man shall live on God's word alone. You know, man shall not live by bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he was to remain trusting in the Lord and in his word. The second temptation that he faced was the pride of life. There the enemy took him up there on the pinnacle and he quoted the Psalms to him. He says, isn't it written? He shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up 
lest you dash your foot against a stone. He said, throw yourself down. The angels will, will bear you up. Doesn't the scripture say it? And Jesus says, no, you shall not test the Lord your God. So he didn't want to um, put God in a responsibility to catch him. Now, Satan tempted him over pride. He says, well, if you're the son of God, obviously God will do it. Show everybody that you're the son of God. But he didn't, you know, he didn't succumb to that temptation. The final temptation was for the lust of the eyes. We're told that the enemy took Jesus up on the, the mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, these are mine, and I give them to whomever I choose. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so the enemy wanted Jesus to bypass the cross for the crown, right? He wanted Jesus to, to bypass the will of God in order to receive the kingdoms now. And the Lord didn't give in to those temptations. Jesus was victorious over them. And as a result of that, we find the Lord as a person that we can come to when we're also tempted. He understands what it is to be tempted, to be put in those situations. But also, the Lord has victory for us because he chose to remain in the will of God through the Spirit. He went to the cross and he conquered sin, death, and Satan through the cross. And now he's able to offer mercy and grace. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the believer in the Old Testament came to God by sacrifice. But these offerings always left them with a continual reminder that they still had guilt, that they still needed to come and offer another sacrifice the next year. Their sin was only covered. It never gave them the confidence and the understanding that their sins were finally forgiven and that they can receive victory over sin. But the believer in Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross, can now come boldly to the throne. We can come with confidence knowing that Jesus offers forgiveness and empowerment to those who will come and seek him. We have forgiveness in the fact that we obtain mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment, but God gives us mercy. He gives us forgiveness. But also, we, as we come, we find grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's God's unmerited, undeserved gift. Now, if you want a case in point to show that Jesus is greater than any high priest, think about the grace that he offers to us. Think about it. It's limitless. It is really beyond our comprehension. And you see that in this small phrase here, in the time of need, in the time of need. Grace comes to help in time of need. Now, define time of need. You, you really can't define time of need because it changes for each person who has a time of need. I mean, so really to think about it, the grace that the Lord has for us is limitless in what it can give us grace and empowerment to deal with in the time of need. I mean, you can give a list of a million things. I mean, you can give a list for every person on this earth, you know, a billion people or so on this earth. And as they come to the Lord with all their needs, the Lord's able to help them in their time of need. The Lord's able to help them in their time of need. No high priest was able to do this in the Old Testament. Only through the cross, only through the Lord at God's right hand are we able to receive this. Why turn back to Judaism? They were to press forward to the Lord who was able to give them what they needed to press forward, mercy and grace. And so the writer makes it very clear that Jesus is greater than any high priest. Second, in chapter five, verses one through 10, we see that Jesus met God's criteria to be the great high priest. 
Now, maybe some would object to Jesus being called the great high priest, as I said, because everyone knows that the Messiah is a king from the tribe of Judah and not a high priest from the line of Aaron. But the writer will show us that Jesus did meet the qualifications, the prerequisites, and he shows us this by pointing out four things that every high priest would have to fulfill if he was going to be a high priest. And those four things here are given in the first couple verses. First, in verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first thing we see is that the priest had to be taken from among men. So in other words, the priest had to be a man. You know, the high priest wasn't an angel, but he was a man. And in order for Jesus to be a high priest, he also had to be a man. And so God would take from among men a, a man to, to do this work, to offer both gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins and also for their worship. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. So not only does he have to be a man, but second, he had a ministry that was characterized by compassion and sympathy. And so as a man, the high priest would understand what it was to have a need to offer sacrifice. He understood the ignorance of the people, that as they came and offered these sacrifices, he understood that he also to himself had to offer sacrifices. And we see that on the great feast days. God commanded the high priest to offer first for himself, and then he could offer for the people. Verse 3, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And so the third qualification for a high priest was they were to have a ministry characterized by offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, and this is what God did specifically under Aaron in the law. You see, God began requiring and demanding animal sacrifice for sin under the law of Moses. It was really God's grace to do that. God gave the law, but God knew that man could never fully keep up, keep, you know, keep the law and fulfill the law. And so he gave animal sacrifice as a way in which God could restore fellowship with man when they sin. And so because of that, one of the priest's main ministries was to offer sacrifice. I mean, that's really what they did a lot was offer sacrifices. You know, morning and evening they would offer sacrifices. On the major feast days they would offer sacrifices. They would offer sacrifices to atone and to cover for the sins of the people, but they would also offer sacrifices as a way in which man could worship God. And so there's various offerings that included that, the drink offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, all these different offerings. They all required the priest to go on behalf of the person to offer uh, for God. Verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so forth, a high priest was not just an ordinary Jew who chose this as his profession. You know, the Jewish boy didn't wake up, maybe he's from the tribe of Simeon, or Asher, or Gad, and he says, you know what? I think I want to be a priest. Sounds pretty cool, right? They got kind of comfortable positions, you know, they work a lot, you know, but, but yet they have all their needs paid for. It sounds pretty good. No, they couldn't do that. A priest had to be chosen by God. He had to be appointed by God. He had to be from the tribe of Aaron, 
right, under the law, or uh, excuse me, the tribe of Levi, and he had to be from the family of Aaron. So they had to be appointed for that. A person under the law who tried to appoint themselves as priests, you know, it didn't turn out very well for them. They received judgment. The sons of Korah didn't turn out well for them. They said, hey, why go to Moses and Aaron? Come to us. And God said, hey, get away from these people. And, you know, their whole house was swallowed up. You know, they had the first sinkhole like in Florida, you know, kind of thing. That's what shows you don't live in Florida. Hurricanes and sinkholes, right? Stay in California where the air is terrible, and, but the word is hot, you know. So also we have Saul. Saul wanted to be a priest. You know, he says, hey, I'm going to get... I'm gonna, you know, get with this right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help out God. So he tried to offer a sacrifice, and and Samuel told him that because of that, judgment was gonna come. Uzziah, the righteous king, he offered a sacrifice. He wanted to be a priest, and it didn't turn out well for him. So each of these men tried to assume the role of priest without being appointed, and their situations ended in judgment. And so that's what the writer points out. He says, okay, guys, let's think about these qualifications for priests, these prerequisites. First of all, they had to be a man, right? They had to have a ministry of compassion and sympathy, right? They had to, their whole ministry was based on offering the sacrifice for people, and then they had to be appointed by God. So after he points that out, he says, well, look at Jesus now. Look at how he fulfilled these roles to be in this list as a great high priest. Now, he doesn't give them an exact order that he gave the, um, you know, the first four verses, but he does point to each one. First in verses five through six, we see that Jesus was appointed to be a high priest. Verse five, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus was appointed by God as high priest in two specific ways. First is given to us in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2, in context, is talking about the sonship of Jesus. It's talking about the fact that the son will reign as king in the future literal kingdom. But Paul gives us some more insight about this in Acts 13. He says that this term, begotten, refers to Jesus' resurrection. And so, in other words, because Jesus is the resurrected son of God, he is now able to be the mediator between God and man in the presence of God. And so if you're gonna be the great high priest, well then you need to be resurrected. You need to be eternal and in the presence of God. And Jesus fulfilled that through his resurrection. And God declared that there in Psalm two. Then it gets even better. In Psalm 110, we're told that Jesus is said to be a priest, but not according to Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek, which actually lived before Aaron. As we're gonna see in chapter seven, Levi actually paid tithes to um, you know, Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham. And so uh, he's gonna explain all that in this role of Melchizedek and, and who he was. But for now, it's important to note Jesus' appointment. Now, Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek in that he is a eternal high priest, and that's what the writer says here. He's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, Aaron, his priesthood was temporary because the law was temporary. It had a time limit on it. So his priesthood wouldn't last forever, but Melchizedek's priesthood, in a sense, 
establish an eternal priesthood in that the book of Genesis never mentions that he dies and never mentions that his priesthood ended. Now we know that Melchizedek was just a normal man and he did die and his priesthood did end, but since we're not told it in scripture, Jesus fulfills that type, he fulfills that picture in becoming a high priest for us in that he lives forever and that he is eternal at the right hand of God. And so yes, Jesus was appointed he is appointed according to the order of Melchizedek to be our eternal high priest who intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Jesus was also a man as a high priest was a man, verse seven, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. In the days of his flesh refers to Jesus' earthly life. And so Jesus did live as a man. He, he walked this earth as a man. He experienced hunger as we did, thirst as we did, right? Temptation as he was tempted from without by the enemy. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus, one of the major characteristics of his earthly life was prayer. He is always seen praying in communion with the Father. At times, he spent the entire night in prayer with the Father. He prayed before important decisions, such as choosing the 12 apostles. He prayed before he broke the bread. I mean, so he prayed, you know, and, and thanked God for, for giving him, you know, the, the, really the foolishness of, of the world and, and, you know, the, and not the, the wise and those who are prideful. So the Lord often prayed. Now, one specific time that he prayed is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that this was an intense time of prayer. He cried out to the Lord with prayers and supplications, with vehement cries. He he made his tears, you know, pour out to God as he was there. He made his voice known to the Lord. And we're told in Luke that he actually sweat great drops of blood. And the Lord heard his prayer. Now notice the Lord heard his prayer not because he was the son of God, but because of his godly fear, which shows us, once again, that God answers prayer because not he was the son of God, but because the, right, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. So he gave us that example. The writer of Hebrew tells us that Jesus offered up these prayers and God answered his prayer. God would deliver him through death, through the resurrection. The Lord would raise him up. He would conquer sin. He would conquer death. Jesus walked this earth as a man. He was able to experience it for us. And because of that, he's able to become our sympathetic high priest. He's able to minister for us and to us. We're able to come to him, you know, at any time and pour out our heart to him, and he's able to minister to us and understand what we're going through because he also experienced it the same way. He knew the cost of laying down his life for the Father. Verse eight, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so the writer already said this in chapter two, verse 10, Jesus was equipped to become our high priest through his suffering. He was able to experience it. He was able to know the cost of obedience. As a God, he didn't, as God, he didn't have to learn anything, but as a man, he was able to experience it so he can better minister to us. Fourth, Jesus did the work of a high priest and offered a sacrifice for sin. Verse nine, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The word perfect means finished. And it's actually the same word that Jesus used on the cross, italicized, it's finished, it's completed. 
Jesus completed the work of redemption on the cross as he was offered up for our sins. And so just as the high priest would have a ministry of sacrifice and offering, Jesus' entire life was lived to offer up his own life, to lay down his own life. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so in summing, in summing up the writer's argument, it's really an amazing argument when you think about it. He says, hey guys, Jesus is the great high priest. And just in case you have an objection to this, he fulfilled those four important prerequisites to be the high priest. He was a man, right? He has a ministry of sympathy. Right? He offered up his life of sacrifice and he was appointed by God. Verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's where really he leaves off. In verse 11, we're gonna see that, hey guys, he says, by the way, I wanted to go on, I wanted to get deeper into some doctrine, but you guys aren't able to handle it right now. You, you, we need to go back to the basics. And so he really gives this exhortation now, beginning in verse 11, to press forward into the mature things of faith. And that's where we'll pick up um, next week. But for tonight, what a great encouragement for us as the Lord talks about prayer, right? As the Lord really sets up himself as a perfect example. He says, hey, we all go through various things, but the good news is we can all come to the Lord through prayer. We can seek him through prayer and he'll offer, and he'll give to us mercy and grace to meet any situation, any circumstance we find ourselves. Amen?